Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Boris Johnson has big plans for the nation. Conservative MPs and party members are gathering in Manchester for the start of their annual conference. The Prime Minister tells his party that he'll deal with the biggest issues that no government has had the guts to tackle. So how did he do that? By talking utter <laughs> What monkey glands are they applying in Ribble Valley? What royal jelly are they eating? In our wonderful nurses pool, my chestnuts out of that Tartarian pit. Cordroid, cobbinous, cosmonauts, fibre optic vermicelli, coagulated roundabouts, cheek by jowler, raucous caucus from the anti-orcus caucus. <laughs> the country's on his arse. And he's taken acid and swallowed a dictionary. <laughs> Did you hear what he said? Raucous, caucus, sausage, porcus. <laughs> it's like he's trying to remember his safe word. <laughs> ask your parents. He's. <laughs> Don't ask your parents, actually. <laughs> But Boris is absurd. We've got a fuel crisis, and he's boasting about this. Otters are returning to rivers from which they've been absent for decades. Who needs petrol? We've got otters! <laughs> you can't... You can't run a car on otters. And when he wasn't banging on about the animals of Farthing Wood, he just came up with meaningless slogans. Build back butter. Build back batter. Build back burger. Build back bitter. Build back fever, I say. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Build back beaver? <laughs> That's not useful. Here's a slogan for you, Boris. Stop talking bollocks! <laughs> we don't want slogans. We want answers. But whenever he's asked a tricky question, he deflects it by saying a normal word in a funny way. Listen to the way he says global. Have you got 100% of your staff back behind their desks? No, I think I don't... What's your percentage? I, 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 it depends which... I've got which 100% department. back at depend, LBC. It de it depend, what have you got? It depend, it de well, I congratulate you. Yes. I, I, I congratulate... And does that apply to the whole of global? <laughs> <laughs> but the trouble is... <laughs> Boris Johnson does this all the time. I have nothing to say about this matter except to offer you some tea. Flying frisbee. Blue. Passport. From Google. Dude. One crouton. Vegan sausage rolls. UFOs. Flapjacks. And yeah, he's funny. There's no denying that we don't need funny people in a crisis. They don't help. Nobody has ever been in a burning building and gone, Quick! Someone get me a comedian! <laughs> that was British TV, radio, and online stand-up stage comic Russell Howard with a little, well, unintended help from the UK corporate media, one of many satirical performances that don't seem to want for a wealth of material targeting British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, best known for his show's Good News, The Russell Howard Hour, and Mock the Week. Howard phones in from London to preview what he's up to lately and his upcoming international comedy tour, stopping by here in the U.S. as well. First, we'll hear a little more of his no-laughing matter when it comes to Boris, whose allies have been fleeing his controversial administration in droves lately, then Russell Howard. Boris Johnson made a huge announcement. The Prime Minister warns we're facing an Omicron emergency as he sets out a bold new plan for boosters. The Prime Minister made the announcement in a televised address after warning that a tidal wave of Omicron is coming. We must urgently reinforce our wall of vaccine protection to keep our friends and loved ones safe. Must we? <laughs> we didn't give out anyone's loved ones last Christmas, did you, Boris? <laughs> the rules, you and your mates were on the lash. It now appears there were seven parties in and around Westminster last Christmas. Seven parties! <laughs> we were locked down, they had a week-long Mardi Gras! <laughs> and yet, his ministers are still denying these parties even happened. Um, I don't even know if an event took place, but if it did, that no rules were broken. The event didn't happen, but if it did happen, then it won't have happened how you think it happened. 
case closed or open. Downing, <laughs> Downing Street advisors were laughing at us. Did you see what they called the party? This fictional party was a business meeting. <laughs> and it was not socially distanced. It was a business meeting. Really? Because by the end of it, many were rattled. They did a quiz. And look who hosted it. It's the 15th of December last year inside 10 Downing Street. Boris Johnson is hosting a round of a staff Christmas quiz. Two colleagues are either side of him, one with tinsel wrapped around him. Boris was running the quiz. Question one, we're in a national lockdown. Should we A, obey the rules like everybody else? Or B, do what we want? <laughs> we're the Tories. And despite being photographed there, he's still denying it even happened. Mr Johnson has repeatedly said there was no party, that no rules were broken. Now he appears to have ordered an investigation to see if what he was saying was true. He's ordered an investigation to see if he was lying. He was there. He was there next to a man covered in tinsel and a woman with either a tiny hat or a massive head. Hello and welcome. Thank you very much for having me. What can you say about your upcoming comedy tour and what else you've been up to, described as, quote, trying to make sense of a world that is spinning out of control? Mm. So, what have I been up to? I've, I've just done a Netflix special uh, that's called Lubricant, um, which will really disappoint perverts <laughs> because it isn't really about any kind of fornication. It's basically, I, I thought of this phrase, which is, laughter is the lubricant that makes life livable. And that the whole special is kind of like a love letter to giggling and laughter and how vital it is. Uh, particularly in the last two years, or, or any time really, it's like uh, life is a battle, laughter is, is respite. So that was what the special was about. And then I did a documentary called Until the Wheels Come Off, which was meant to be a documentary about 20 years in comedy and following me around these kind of arenas in the UK and then arenas in Europe and then all these small gigs we were going to do in America. And uh, COVID came along and put a stop to that. So here we are. Now I'm, um, I'm about to do my, uh, my sort of pull that I kept putting off because of COVID in America starting March the 17th. And I can't wait. And have you ever had any reactions about your comedy from those you satirize in the government from, say, Boris? Yeah, well, it, it, to be honest, it's pretty easy being a British uh, satirical comedian because, you know, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> to play with. Like, we have a leader who's part alpaca, part thesaurus. And, yeah, so he, I think, you know, we kind of lay into him and, uh, you know, I've got a TV show and we take the mick, but it, yeah, it's very different. Let's say if I was a Russian satirist, unless they're able to uh, <laughs> to get away with poking fun at Boris. But yeah, we don't really have any any bother. And with all those scandals going on around Boris and mass resignations, what do you think will be his fate? Well, I think I don't know. It's it's very interesting because you sort of oscillate between what he's you know, will he, will he stay or go? I think if it was anybody else, you know, and you'd behaved how he done, there's no way you'd have your job. Like, you know, if you were having parties during a lockdown when people were burying their loved ones in, uh, you know, and not being able to hold proper funerals, then uh, there's no way that, that you would keep your job. But Boris is kind of Teflon. He seems to get away with it. But the irony being that the only reason that they rid of him is because uh, his government don't think he's right-wing enough. That's why he'll be ousted. It won't be because of the, uh, the outrage from the public. It's because he's, uh, he's not being right-wing enough. It's interesting. But I don't know. I couldn't call it. I couldn't call what he'd say. But it's a bleak type of politics, say, eh, when you look at... I often think this with America. It's the same as England. It's like it's just the paucity of leadership is... It's staggering that the left are too left and the right are too right. And we're in the middle, just exhausted. Mm. And with your very candid sense of humor, would you say you've ever been a victim of cancel culture? 
know it's I, but the interesting is I think that's always been around like uh, I've got an old Lenny Bruce um, album mm. where he was talking about you know uh, people being upset with jokes it, it will forever be I think some people love to laugh some people don't you know and the great thing about comedy clubs is that that's where people go to how comedians go to 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 talk. I think it's like if you if you're trying to make jokes from Twitter, you know, then just don't. It's the worst. You know, it's just not real. It's such an absurd place. You know. Um, so yeah, certainly in comedy clubs, audiences are great, man. They'll always laugh. Mm. And how do you manage to create humor out of some terrible things the world is living through right now and make people laugh over what may be depressing them? Yeah, I I think, I don't know, people do, it's like we have a huge knife crime problem in the UK and I was talking about that in in my special and my point was thinking from the point of view of a nine-year-old boy that's been lured into a gang and just thinking how simple my childhood was in in relation. And I had a, a, a pretty filthy gag about what me and my brother used to get up to when we were nine. But the point is that, that hopefully the humour uh, sort of articulates uh, how, how lucky you are or a sort of degree of empathy. I think that's the thing with, not to get too lofty, I think that's the great thing about comedy, is that sometimes through laughter it can sort of highlight a point and I don't know, sort of create a juxtaposition in your head uh, when you think about it later. Whereas in the moment, you're just kind of laughing, you know? And I love doing that. I find that so interesting. Certainly when comedians do that, it really resonates with me. And speaking of COVID, what's going on there right now in the UK, especially with Boris being accused of violating the COVID rules and partying? Mm. Well, the great thing is, I think we're hopefully such wood, it feels like we're in the back stretch because um, the cases are they're going down, hospital cases are pretty sort of stable. My wife's a doctor, so um, I kind of throw a window into this. But it looks like um, yeah, we've got no uh, restrictions, uh, we don't have to wear masks, theatres are full, people are going out. I think there's a real sense now of Right, we've had our jabs, we've had our boosters, let the cards fall where they may, and let's get back to living again. You know, it feels like, certainly at live gigs, like, British audiences are currently like American ones, in that they're instantly excited in a way that, ordinarily, it's not the case, but I think we've hibernated for so long, just this desperate desire to be part of an audience again is, is, um, is really kind of coming through. And how would you say, or would you say, your approach to your humor is different for British versus American audiences, and any different sense of humor each has, or what they find funny? Well, you always learn that. I remember you learn so much about your culture when you're in someone else's. Like, we have a thing called a lollipop man over here, (laughs) and I didn't realize that that was strange until I was explaining it at a gig in New York. Because I explained what a lollipop man is. It's where an old man, we give an old man a giant lollipop made of uh, metal to help children across a busy road. And uh, a gentleman in the crowd shouted out, why? And I, I, I said, I don't know. And it was only in that moment that I realized how insane it was that surely there are easier ways to get kids across school. And it became a really fun part of that particular show. So, yeah, that's, you don't realize what's odd or strange about your culture sometimes until you explain it to someone else. Mm. And but I think the audience is very similar, really. And I think yeah. also with kind of YouTube, this is an amazing thing now where I can do a gig in, you know, I, I live in London, but I can do a gig in, in Copenhagen. And there's like, you know, 2,000 people waiting and they kind of know who I am. And, yeah, you know, I take an interest in them. They take an interest in mm. me. And it kind of works, you know. The, the, yeah. world, the world is a lot smaller than it ever has been from a comedy point of view. Yeah. You know? Okay, thank you, Russell Howard, for calling in. Pleasure. Okay. Thanks, for, thanks for having me. Take care. And Russell Howard's comedy tour will take off in March. And next on the program, during this week of Valentine's Day, 
Coming up is Arts Express showing some love for Black History Month right now as well. And there's a daily series of Black History Month Moments in Time, sharing historic moments in African American history and hosted by Marilyn Foster. And here's one of her daily Moments in Time. Welcome to Moments in Time with your host, Marilyn Foster, sharing historic moments in African American history. Did you know that a painter and sculptor defied negative stereotypes about African Americans? Today's Moment in Time will feature painter and sculptor Richmond Barth. Richmond Barth was a painter and sculptor during New York's Harlem Renaissance. Barth was born January 28, 1901, in St. Bay Louis, Mississippi. From childhood, Barth loved drawing and painting with watercolors. By the age of 12, his talents had developed enough to exhibit his art at the Mississippi County Fair. In 1915, Barth moved to New Orleans, where he applied to various art schools, but was denied admission because he was African-American. He moved to Chicago in 1924 and enrolled in the Chicago Art Institute to study painting. However, his interest turned to sculpting. In February 1929, Barth graduated from the Chicago Art Institute and moved to New York. Barth's decision to move to New York proved to be productive, prosperous, and prestigious. Barth held his first solo exhibition, gaining widespread recognition in New York. In 1940 and 1941, he was nominated for the Guggenheimen Fellowship, which he accepted. Barth created an eight foot by 80 foot frise, Exodus and Dance, completed in 1939 for the Harlem River Houses. His work was later named Green Pastures, The Walls of Jericho, and it was installed at the Kingsborough Houses in 1941. Barth was quoted as saying, all my life I have been interested in trying to capture the spiritual quality I see and feel in people. And I feel that the human figure as God has made it is the best means of expressing this spirit in man. Today, we celebrate Richmond Barth whose gift brought grace, balance, beauty, and rhythm, making him one of the most prolific artists of the Harlem Renaissance and in the world. And more about those many Black History Month moments in time can be found on Marilyn Foster's YouTube channel, which is our Arts Express Best of the Net Hotspot this week. And coming up next, veteran director and screenwriter Bal August phones in from Denmark, spotlighting his latest release, The Pact, a dramatic feature about the real-life strange literary relationship between the late-famed Danish author Karen Blixen, alias pen name Isaac Dennison, and the aspiring writer, often harshly treated apprentice, Thorkild Bonvik. In the film, the pompous and demeaning Blixen, you might say, intending the young writer to suffer for his art and according to August, may have her reasons. August, most known for Pell the Conqueror with Max van Sydow, Les Miserables, Night Train to Lisbon, and three of the Indiana Jones in the series, directed as well another biopic, The Best Intentions, written by the late screen legend Ingmar Bergman, about his own difficult coming of age in the world. August will talk about his own creative inspiration he drew from his relationship with Bergman working on the film, and which he describes as, quote, most of the time we talked about life. And in some ways, not unlike how Blixen inspired that young writer in the pact. August also takes the Arts Express hot seat during this discussion to field questions about Blixen's condescension related to women, power, class contradictions, and colonialism connected to her plantation in Africa, written about in her book, Out of Africa, and issues connected to unreliable narrators, and a case of triple mansplaining. As this focus on Blixen's life in the film by three men, August, his screenwriter, and Bonvig, 
on whose own memoir this film is based. Now, The Pact is a Danish language film, but here is a little from another production mounted about Karen Blixen, The Baroness, her royal title by marriage, by the Scandinavian American Theatre Company and the director, Henning Hegland. The Baroness Blixen, who writes under the name Isaac Dinnison, is a frail person, but inside her there burns a great and wonderful light. And this kind of light is the hope of the world. The Baroness Blixen. Karen Blixen is a tour de force of a woman in a time when women were expected to be demure and just a housewife. She gained really an independence. Her life was filled with love and uh, love affairs, but also tragedy. She lost her father when she was 10 to suicide. Her greatest love in Kenya died in a plane crash. And uh, Karen herself, after her farm went under, uh, attempted suicide. And out of this pain, out of this tragedy, emerged Karen Blixen, the storyteller. I think that art is really disciplined fantasy, and nobody as severely disciplined as the storyteller. The Baroness is Karen Blixen's return to New York City. Her greatest joy was to come to the country that had first embraced her when nobody else would. And she loved her American audience. She was here for three months and was fated by everyone in society. A very famous lunch with Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller that supposedly involved some dancing on the table by Marilyn Monroe. And it is very exciting for us to be able to bring her back again, hopefully with some more drinking, champagne and dancing on tables. Hello. Hello and welcome. Thanks a lot. Okay, what intrigued you about Karen Blixen and this memoir about her that inspired you to direct this film? Uh, I read this uh, biography by Topol Bjarnvik uh, and I was always been I always been interested by uh, Karen Blixen and her, and her writing. And then I read this novel and and I find it fascinating this peculiar relationship they had. And also, I was fascinated by trying to understand the way she was thinking as a writer, you know, because I think the way, the fact that she got uh, uh, syphilis in, in Africa and where she uh, made a pact with the devil where uh, the devil said uh, that she had to give uh, him his, her soul and in return to promise her that whatever she thereafter experienced will become a part of uh, her stories. I think that was a fascinating in, uh, way of understanding how she was thinking as, as an artist, as a storyteller. Now it's been said that nobody is a villain in their own life story. So is there anything you questioned about the portrayal of Blixen in this memoir and perhaps an unreliable narrator? And I, of course, I had always my doubts about the truth of this kind of memoirs, but then I've read other stories about her. And actually, she didn't mind to have that play that part, uh, not being a devil, but, but being, uh, she was. So, so she didn't mind that. And, um, and you know, she was so self-staged, you know, she always had these big dinners in her house and she loved to combine people. So, and she loved to to um, also combine a way so they would be a source of inspiration for, for her, her stories because that's what the devil promised her that whatever she experienced would be part of the story. So she was kind of manipulating with reality in order to, to fulfill her, her stories. So, so it was, she was in, but she didn't mind to play that part. She was, she was a puppet master. And how do you think Blixen would have reacted to her portrayal in this memoir on the one hand and to your film about her? I think she would have been pleased because, <laughs> you know, every 
she had so many uh, carnivals and, and this kind of thing in her house, and she was always dressed up as as the devil. She liked to be that. Uh, she didn't mind that. I think she would be have been happy. But it, what was also important in our film was not to portray her as 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 a mean or evil person. She was not like that. She invited. Um, she invited, first of all, people to her house and, and, and Tokyo Bjorn uh, to her house uh, in order to make him a better writer because she understood she, he had a talent and she, 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 she thought she could make him a better writer, which she actually became. Uh, so, so that was the, the main reason. But in the film, it was also important for us to tell that when all the guests had left, uh, when the spotlights were off, she was a lonely person. She was uh, alone with her demons and alone with her stories. That that portrait of her was also important for, her, for us to tell. Now, the point of view on this woman is from the perspective of three men, you, your screenwriter, and the author. So how do you feel that casts a particular light on portraying Blixen in contrast if it were from a female perspective? It's difficult to judge, but you know, it, what's interesting is in the in this film, actually, who comes out uh, as the strong people are the women. I mean, the weaker person in the film is, is the man, but the three women are the stronger ones. So, so I think the balance is quite okay. And what are your memories of working on another memoir, The Best Intentions, and your memories of Bergman and how he inspired you and about which you said, the time you spent with him working on the film, quote, I spent almost three months with Bergman, and to be honest, most of the time we talked about life. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned Ingmar Bergman, because when I was working on this film, I was trying to understand also how a young, unknown person, storyteller, how he in a modern time how how would how would that work and i was uh, imagine if somebody like ingmar bergman all of a sudden would call a young female or male director first time director and ask if you come to my house for two months i can make you a better director and uh, and i think any director any young director would immediately fly to his island and spend time with him so i think it's easy to understand why people were so fascinated by by Blixen because she had that power as Ingmar Bergman has in his world. But anyway, talking about Ingmar Bergman, you know, we worked closer together for, for, for some time and um, and you know, directors normally never meet, directors meet actors and act, actors meet actors but director never meets and for me to meet another director and especially somebody like Ingmar Bergman was such an enormous experience for me to spend so much time with him and talk about the work. But it's true, most of the time we also spoke uh, spoke about life, and and um, and he became he, be, he became a close friend to me. And every after we finished the film, every Saturday, uh, I think it was two o'clock, we were on the phone, not five to two or five past two, but it was always two o'clock. We, we were on the phone together and talked about uh, life and, you know, whatever. It, it, and I still miss him a lot, really. He was a great person. This story about Blixen converges around the issues of gender, class, and colonialism in Kenya. How do you see those elements expressed in your film? especially power and class issues connected to a woman rather than usually to a man. Yeah, but, but it, I think it, it, Camp Blixen was, um, for, the, for, for her time, she was extraordinary. Uh, and, and if you compare, compare to young people, or, or at least our leading male character, Chocolate uh, Bjarni, you know, he was... It was in 1950, and, and young people were not able to travel because of the war. So, so they had not they had not seen the world. And all of a sudden, somebody like Ken Blixen contacted him and said, "I can make you a better writer. Come to my house." 
he was amazed by her because she was a queen. She was world famous. She was so exotic, different world for him. So, and of course she had that power, but but also she was she was she had enormous social talent, and she was she was extremely intelligent and charming. Plus, she had her sexuality. And would you say you identified with each of these two main characters, and in particular, creatively as a writer yourself? I totally understand Chokri um, Pianvi being this young man who all of a sudden is invited to 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 stay in a house with one of the most famous writers at that time in the world. I totally understand him. But what I also understand in him is, and this is a universal question, the conflict between uh, being a creative person and, and dealing with that as in, in compared to uh, to the private life. I think we all have that conflict in, in us. How, how do we balance the uh, work, the creation and working life with with um, with the private life and and Tolkien uh, we had he was married had just had a baby and and um, and all of a sudden um, Karen Blixen took was trying to take that away from him or at least getting because she she hated marriage Karen Blixen didn't respect marriage she thought it was it is would destroy a creative person so so. Uh, but that it was made not part of the big conflict in the story his, his between for him uh, between uh, being creative person and and the private life. And any thoughts about the mass protests over there in Denmark related to the pandemic, and the Danish discovery recently of yet another additional coronavirus? Yeah, it's funny actually. Uh, Denmark has opened up completely; all restrictions are gone. Yeah. No mask, nothing. It's very bizarre. But I think they, they have just, just realized that it's better now to have, I don't know the English word, but mass uh, mass uh, protection by the... So it's, it's weird because for two years we have been living with all these stories and being isolation or whatever. So the fact that we... It's, it's, it's interesting to see what will happen now. And what can you say about another biographical film production you're working on, Desire, about Thomas Wolfe, and what drew you to that literary figure? Uh, I, I love him as a writer. He's amazing. I, I don't know where the project stands at the moment. Uh, it, it's something I need to do in, in the future. But at the moment, it, it's not on the top. Maybe one day, not, not this year. Not. And any last word on The Pact? Any last word about the pact? You know, it it has been such a wonderful experience for me diving into Camp Lixon's world and try to understand her as as a storyteller. I've learned a lot from it, and I've been very very fascinated with being with her for such a long time. And I'm sure if she was able to see the film, she would like it. And when by August looks in the mirror, what does he see? My God. <laughs> What do I see? I see, uh, I see uh, somebody who is uh, has to do what I have to do, making stories, telling stories, make movies, but also a father. You know, I have eight children, oh, yeah. and you find the balance in that. So that's what I see. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for calling into the show from Denmark. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. And now, in our Arts Express screening room, we'll hear an excerpt from one of Blixen's many dark brooding works from her collection, Last Tales, The Blank Page. why you are to be a storyteller. 
and I shall give you my reasons. Where the story has been betrayed, silence is but emptiness. But we the faithful, when we have spoken our last word, will hear the voice of silence. And the moment of his highest inspiration has written down its tale with the rarest ink of all. Well then, we one read a still deeper, sweeter, and merrier, and more cruel tale than that upon the blank page. You want a tale, sweet lady and gentleman? Indeed. I have told many tales, one more than a thousand. Since that time when I first let young men tell me, myself, tales of a red rose, two small tiny buds, and four silky supple deadly entwining snakes, it was my mother's mother, the black-eyed dancer, the often embraced in the end wrinkled like a winter apple and crouching beneath the mercy of the veil took upon herself to teach me the art of storytelling. Her own mother's mother had taught it to her and both were better storytellers than I am. But that by now is of no consequence since the people, they and I have become one. And I am the most highly honored because I have told stories for 200 years. We, the old women who tell stories, we know the story of the blank page. But we are somewhat averse to telling it, for it might well among the uninitiated weaken our own credit. All the same, I am going to make an exception with you, my sweet and pretty lady and gentleman of generous hearts. I shall tell it to you. High up in the blue mountains of Portugal, there stands an old convent of sisters of the Carmelite order, which is an illustrious and austere order. In ancient times, the convent was rich. The sisters were all noble ladies, and miracles took place there. But during the centuries, high-born ladies grew less keen on fasting prayer. The great dowries flowed into the treasury of the convent, and today, the few portionless and humble sisters live in but one wing of the vast crumbling structure, which looks as if it longed to become one the gray rock itself. Yet, they are still a bleed in active sisterhood. And the pact is out this week in release. And now on Arts Express... Hi, this is Jack Shalom. What with war fever raging all around us and the media chomping at the bit to bring us more images of shock and awe, more chances to prove that when it comes to stoking conflagrations around the world, we are number one, brought to you by Starbucks and Amazon, it may be the perfect time to bring to our Arts Express book corner the best book ever written by a U.S. general, a slim volume by Marine Major General Smedley Butler, called War is a Racket. Smedley Butler had had an audacious career in the U.S. Marines. He entered the service by lying about his age when he was 17, fought in the Spanish-American War, and was promoted to captain before he was 19. He was in charge of troops all over Central America and the Caribbean and the Philippines, too, and he was often called upon to put down rebel uprisings that threatened U.S. business interests in these low-wage countries. At some point, Butler realized that what he was doing had nothing to do with democracy or the defense of the United States. 
But let me read you what Butler had to say about himself in his words in an article he wrote for the socialist magazine Common Sense. Quote, I spent 33 years and four months in active military service, and during that period I spent most of my time as a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1902-1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for the American sugar interests in 1916. Looking back on it, I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was to operate his racket in three districts. I operated on three continents. Well, I don't think we've ever had or will ever have a more honest general. In 1935, Butler wrote a small book called War is a Racket. Here's a reading from parts of that book. War is a Racket. It always has been. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It's the only one international in scope. It's the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. It's conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many. Out of war, a few people make huge fortunes. In the World War, a mere handful garnered the profits of the conflict. How many of these war millionaires shouldered a rifle? How many of them dug a trench? How many of them knew what it meant to go hungry in a rat-infested dugout? How many of them spent sleepless, frightened nights ducking shells and shrapnel and machine-gun bullets? How many of them parried a bayonet thrust of an enemy? How many of them were wounded or killed in battle? This bill renders a horrible accounting. Newly placed gravestones, mangled bodies, shattered minds, broken hearts and homes, economic instability, depression, and all its attendant miseries, back-breaking taxation for generations and generations. For a great many years as a soldier, I had a suspicion war was a racket. Not until I retired to civil life did I fully realize it. Now that I see the international war clouds gathering as they are today, I must face it and speak out. All of them are looking ahead to war. Not the people, not those who fight and pay and die. Only those who foment wars and remain safely at home to profit. There are 40 million men under arms in the world today. And our statesmen and diplomats have the temerity to say that war is not in the making? Hell's bells! Are these 40 million men being trained to be dancers? Yes! They're getting ready for another war. Why shouldn't they? It pays high dividends. But what does it profit the men who are killed? What does it profit their mothers and sisters, their wives and their sweethearts? What does it profit their children? What does it profit anyone except the very few to whom war means huge profits? The normal profits of a business concern in the United States are 6, 8, 10, sometimes 12 percent. But wartime profits, ha ha ha, that is another matter. 20, 60, 100, 300, and even 1800 percent. The sky is the limit. All that traffic will bear. Uncle Sam has the money. Let's get it. Of course, it isn't put that crudely in wartime. 
It is dressed into speeches about patriotism, love of country, and we must all put our shoulders to the wheel. But the prophets jump and leap and skyrocket and are safely pocketed. Take our friends, the DuPonts, the powder people. How did they do in the war? They were a patriotic corporation. Well, the average earnings of the DuPonts for the period 1910 to 1914 were $6 million a year. It wasn't much, but the DuPonts managed to get along on it. Now let's look at their average yearly profit during the war years, 1914 to 1918. $58 million a year profit we find. Nearly 10 times that of normal times. And the profits of normal times were pretty good. An increase in profits of more than 950%. Not bad. Does war pay? paid them. The soldier pays the biggest part of the bill. Boys with a normal viewpoint were taken out of the fields and offices and factories and classrooms and put into the ranks. There they were remolded. They were made over. They were made to about face to regard murder as the order of the day. They were put shoulder to shoulder, and through mass psychology, they were entirely changed. We used them for a couple of years and trained them to think nothing at all of killing or of being killed. Then, suddenly, we discharged them and told them to make another about-face. This time they had to do their own readjustment, sans mass psychology, sans officer's aid and advice, and sans nationwide propaganda. We didn't need them anymore. Many, too many of these fine young boys are eventually destroyed mentally because they could not make that final about face alone. Beautiful ideals were painted for our boys who were sent out to die. This was the war to end all wars. This was the war to make the world safe for democracy. No one mentioned to them as they marched away that their going and their dying would mean huge war profits. No one told these American soldiers that they might be shot down by bullets made by their own brothers here. They were just told it was to be a glorious adventure. Thus, having stuffed patriotism down their throats, it was decided to make them help pay for the war too. So we gave them the large salary of $30 a month. And all they had to do for this magnificent sum was to leave their dear ones behind, give up their jobs, lie in swampy trenches, eat canned willy when they could get it, and kill and kill and kill and be killed. Well, it's a racket, all right. A few profit and the many pay. But there is a way to stop it. You can't end it by disarmament conferences. You can't eliminate it by peace parleys at Geneva. Well-meaning but impractical groups can't wipe it out by resolutions. It can be smashed effectively only by taking the profit out of war. The only way to smash this racket is to conscript capital and industry and labor before the nation's manhood can be conscripted. Let the officers and the directors and the high-powered executives of our armament factories and our munition makers and our shipbuilders and our airplane builders and the manufacturer of all the other things that provide profit in wartime as well as the bankers and the speculators be conscripted to get $30 a month the same wage as the lads in the trenches get. Let the workers in these plants get the same wages. All the workers, all presidents, all executives, all directors, all managers, all bankers, yes, and all generals, 
and all admirals, and all officers, and all politicians, and all government office holders. Everyone in the nation be restricted to a total monthly income, not to exceed that paid to the soldier in the trenches. Give capital and industry and labor 30 days to think it over, and you will find by that time there will be no war. That will smash the war racket. That and nothing else. I am not a fool as to believe that war is a thing of the past. I know the people do not want war. But there is no use in saying we cannot be pushed into another war. The next war, according to experts, will be fought not with battleships, not by artillery, not with rifles, and not with machine guns. It will be fought with deadly chemicals and gases. Secretly, each nation is studying and perfecting newer and ghastlier means of annihilating its foes wholesale. Yes, ships will continue to be built, for the shipbuilders must make their profits, and guns still will be manufactured, and powder and rifles will be made, for the munition makers must make their huge profits, and the soldiers, of course, must wear uniforms, for the manufacturers must make their war profits, too. So I say, to hell with war! And you've been listening to an adaptation of War is a Racket by Marine Major General Smedley Butler. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.